Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 to 33. Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 to 33. It's no, no secret, if you know me uh, well, you know that I like technology. I like anything uh, tech-wise. I, I could talk about technology for days, probably, I'm sure. I won't. Um, but... Uh, but I do. I like to see a lot of things that we have in the world and a lot of ways in which people take the things that are already in existence and combine them in unique ways to give to us all kinds of uh, neat things that we, we have in the world around us that often we take for granted. There, there's uh, something that's coming of age now called virtual reality. It was a beginning, even as far back as I can remember as being a kid, that it was sort of one of those things that was kind of kitschy back then. It was sort of not useful, and a lot of people thought that, uh, at the end of the day, people will just use it to play video games. And uh, to some extent, that was true. But nowadays, virtual reality is kind of coming of age in which people are using it in lots of different ways, and they're implementing it in things like businesses. And uh, so there's going to be ways in the future that virtual reality is employed that is really helpful for things like construction and various other realms that we didn't even think was possible even just yesterday. Now, if you've ever had one of these demonstrations of virtual reality, you, you probably know what I'm talking about. But you, you put on these massive goggles. Has anybody done this? You done this? No? I see a lot of this. You put on these massive goggles, and you, it's amazing how quickly your brain is convinced that what you're seeing is, is real, is true. And you're, before long, you're walking down hallways, and you're dodging things that jump out at you around corners, and you're sort of behaving like an, like an idiot. Well, the people that are watching outside, it's a totally different experience. So you're inside the goggles, you're convinced what you're seeing is real, the people outside cannot see what you're seeing, and so they're watching you swat about the air like a madman, and duck and scream like crazy, and obviously it's a really funny experience. You look ridiculous to the people outside, because when you see and when you respond to something that no one else can see, you look very strange. Imagine the guy walking down the sidewalk that runs into the spider web. No one else can see that spider web. But that guy, he can feel it, and he can see it, and he's swatting around, and you have no idea what's going on, right? He just looks like a madman. Well, in our text this morning, Jesus is building a case for our fearlessness of persecution. He's building the case that we should be fearless in the midst of persecution. And so in spite of the world that's trying to force compliance to worldliness, Jesus is going to come back and He's going to say, you actually should be fearless in spite of their force. So with that in mind, let's read our text, Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 and following. So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both, body and, both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. 
but even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Pray with me as we begin. Father, as we seek to understand the text that's in front of us, please give us wisdom and insight. May we understand the words that you have spoken here through Matthew, through Jesus, through Matthew, through the Holy Spirit, to all of your people throughout time. So Lord, I pray that you hold our attention and may we earnestly desire to feast on your words so that we may be taught, that we may be reproved, that we may be corrected, that we may be trained in righteousness, that we may be complete and equipped for every good work in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the text that's in front of us, um, there are some very obvious points that Jesus is making to his apostles and really ultimately, I think, to us. And so you'll notice, even just if you just a cursory glance through the text, you'll notice some repeated words, that one repeated word in particular that comes up time and again, and that word is fear. He commands us in two ways. First, he commands us to not fear, and then he actually commands us to fear. And so what we're going to see is that Jesus' kind of underlying point in this passage is really directing our fear, controlling the direction that our fear takes. Fear is a natural response that we have to many of life's situations. But Jesus is concerned about the direction that fear is going. And so he's reorienting our fear, you might say. And so remember the context that this passage occurs in. Remember over the last few weeks that we've been seeing that Jesus has been preparing his apostles for ministry in the world that they're going into. And last week, he prepared, uh, he prepared them that people were going to hate them and were going to persecute them mainly because they hate Jesus. That's the chief reason that they're going to persecute the apostles is because they don't like Jesus. And the same, I said, was true of us, that persecution is something that we should expect. Why? Because the world hates Jesus and we represent him. So we're going out as sheep in, um, amongst wolves and they're going to hate us chiefly because they hate the one that we serve. And so our passage this morning comes right on the heels of Jesus saying this to his apostles, that you're going to face persecution. And it's connected directly to that passage with the word so there at the beginning of verse 26. He says so, and then he explains what he wants them to do because they are going to be persecuted. So in the process of reorienting our fears, Jesus is going to give us at least four reasons why fearing the persecutor is unwise. And the first reason that he gives us is that justice will prevail in the end. Justice will prevail in the end. Look at what he says in verse 26. So have no fear of them, them being the persecutors in the previous passage. Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the rooftops. And so there is one central problem 
about uh, that he's dealing with, and it's this kind of fear that Jesus is talking about here. I don't think that he's just talking about an anxious kind of fear. We certainly see that many times in Scripture, but that anxious kind of fear that you would cause you to chew your own fingernails or come to a sweat, we see Jesus have that kind of fear as He approaches the cross, that fear that He's going to die, that fear that He's going to be beaten. There's an anxious kind of fear that I don't think is chiefly His concern here. Now, there are times where the Bible takes up that kind of fear. Like Paul says, be anxious in nothing in Philippians 4. Or we see Jesus say in Luke, the passage we read today, and and also in Matthew 6 where he says, do not be anxious about your life. That kind of worry over what tomorrow will bring. I don't think that's the specific kind of fear that Jesus is talking about here. I think the fear that he's talking about is the fear of man. The kind of fear where you are so afraid of what the persecutor will do or what people may think that it causes you to change your behavior to avoid their retribution. To avoid their punishment of sorts. Think about the kind of fear that Peter had when he denied Christ three times. He's sitting there by the fireside. He's sitting there watching Jesus. And he's asked, you're a follower of Jesus, aren't you? Aren't you a follower of Jesus? No, 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 no. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. He's fearing that they will identify him with Christ and will put him to death. And so, he denies Christ three times. But now remember, in in spite of that, don't fear the persecutor. Jesus, just a few verses ago, reminded us to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. So it seems like there is this, uh, he, he envisions this middle ground. There's this tension between the two poles. On the one end is not to be uh, fearful of the people that will put you to death. On the other end is don't be stupid either. Don't be ridiculous either. Be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. There's this middle ground. So as an example, if you're a Christian in North Korea... Street evangelism is probably not the tack that you're going to take. And I mean that seriously. You're probably not going to go about evangelizing the lost on the street, standing on a soapbox. That's going to get you put in jail in a heartbeat, or worse, killed in a heartbeat. That's probably not being as wise as a serpent. But refusal to witness is fear. is being ruled out of fear. So instead, the tack that a North Korean Christian might take is to feel out his neighbors. As they're over for dinner or whatever, they might ask questions, certain questions, that give them an idea of just how open they are to hearing the gospel. And then when they've determined that it's a wise time to do so, share the gospel and take whatever consequences may result. So Jesus tells us that the reason that um, it's foolish to stay silent, he says, because nothing is covered that will not be revealed. In other words... The persecutor is seeking to come in and he's seeking to squeeze the Christian. Put the squeeze on the Christian. They seek to pressure the Christian under the cover of darkness. See, North Korea isn't going to just jump out there and talk about how they persecute Christians. They're not just going to tell the world what's really going on in North Korea. 
and how they're putting Christians in jail and how they're offering bounties on their head. No, no, no. They're going to present their country as an open, welcoming, inviting, hospitable place where people can flourish and function. And the society there is great. But what are they doing under the cover of darkness? They're putting Christians in jail. They're killing them. They're offering bounties for their head. See, the persecutors are betting on one thing. They're betting that they will never have to answer for their crimes. They're betting that they will never have to pay or give an account for their sins. They're betting on the fact that what they do behind closed doors, they think they'll never face repercussions for. They're mostly governmental figures that are doing these kinds of persecutions. And they think in their heart, there's no higher power in the land than us. We're not going to have to face any consequences for what we're doing. No account will ever be given for our use of the sword, they think. They're doing it under the cover of darkness. But Christians, on the other hand, are betting differently. Christians are betting on Judgment Day. Certainly one of the central beliefs of Christianity is that Christ will one day return and judge the living and the dead. In other words, Christians are pushing all our chips in on the middle of the table. We're not holding one chip back. We're all in on the fact that one day we are going to close our eyes in death and we are going to immediately open them in life, standing before a judge of all the earth. And so these words that Jesus gives here are really meant to reorient our attention on this central fact that God will one day judge all the things that everyone is doing. Jesus tells us in another place that we're going to have to give an account for every careless word. So we're betting as Christians. Probably not the best thing to give a gambling metaphor in a Baptist church, I realize. But I think you get the picture. We're pushing all the chips in on the middle of the table. That one day we're going to open our eyes and that there will be a judge over all the earth. And everyone will give an account for every single deed. All the ways of worldly people they seek to take advantage of Christians, all of them will be exposed. I'm reminded of what John, the apostle, says in Revelation chapter 18, verse 20. He's reminding them of what uh, is going to happen to Babylon, the wicked city, as it fails. And he says, he writes, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. He has given judgment for you and against her. So we're betting that, that on that day when God rules in the favor of His saints, when He rules for you and against the world. In other words, we might find ourselves right now on the wrong side of history but our hope is that we don't find ourselves on the wrong side of the future. That's what we're betting on. And it's possible that in a fallen world, we do find ourselves on the wrong side of history from time to time. 
What we are betting on is that it's the wrong side of the future that we won't be, or, 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 that we won't be on. That we'll be on the right side of the future. And because we're betting on that day, we should be encouraged by Jesus' words here, what He tells us. So it becomes foolishness then to fear the ones that are going to be on the wrong side of the future. To fear the ones that are going to suffer the wrath of God one day. Why would you fear them, in other words? So as an alternative to fear, Jesus tells us, what does He tell His disciples here in, uh, in the next verse? He tells them um, to, to take what He's telling them and go about doing it. To shout it from the rooftops. In other words, as opposed to your persecutors who are doing their deeds in darkness, what does He say about His own words? What I'm telling you, shout it from the rooftops. All of the deeds that I'm giving you can be exposed in the here and now. All of them can be seen. You can see all of them. I'm not shameful about any of them. None of them are done in darkness. The second reason that it's unwise to be fearful of our persecutors, he says the forces of this present world only have temporary power. The forces of this present world only have temporary power. Look at what he says in verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Okay, so admittedly, this is a little bit of bad news, right? Verse 28 can come across with a little bit of despair. And the reason is because the, the persecutors that would retaliate against you confronting them with sin. That's the context, right? You're going out into the world. You're confronting people with sin, with the gospel. You're confronting their own sinful behaviors in some cases. You're confronting the sin of the world around them. And you're going out doing this. And the concession is that they can kill you. That it is possible they can kill you. I mean, think about what he's saying there for a moment. God has given them the power over the body. He's given the government the power of the sword. And sometimes they do wield it. And when they wield it, sometimes it's those that are the proclaimers of the good news that take the brunt of it. And so he concedes that there are people that will kill you. And they do have power over the body. So in other words, death is not ultimately taken out of the equation. We would hope it would be, right? If we're reading this and we really want some consolation, maybe we live in a country where there's extreme persecution, wouldn't we want even just a little bit of consolation to say, okay, if, if you go out and you proclaim the word, then I will put a hedge of protection around you and you will never be persecuted. Wouldn't we be encouraged if Jesus just said, look, I got your back. You go out and do whatever you want to. You proclaim the word in whatever way you want to. And no one will ever use the sword against you. I will protect you. But that's not what he says. He doesn't remove death from the equation. He tells us in no uncertain terms, yes, death is an option in this scenario. But I emphasize that because I want you to see the subtle reversal that he actually comes in and follows it up with lying underneath the surface of the text. What does he say next? He says, don't fear them, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and 
body in hell. Now, wait a minute. Well, he's just told us that they destroyed the body. Who destroys the body here? Is it God or is it the persecutor? It seems like the persecutor destroys the body. But here he says, God destroys both soul and body. Which one destroys the body? God or the persecutor? And the answer is yes. I love those times. Well, the answer is both, actually. The word that he uses here for hell, and really throughout Matthew, throughout the Gospels, the word that he uses for hell is Gehenna. G-E-H-E-N-N-A. G-E-H-E-N-N-A. Gehenna. And the reason I tell you that is because it comes from a place located on the southern slopes of Jerusalem called the Valley of Hinnom. It's a place. There is a location just outside Jerusalem, not far actually from the Temple Mount, where this, this valley comes together, the Valley of Hinnom. And it has a long history of vile things that went on there. All the way back to Ahaz, the king of Judah, actually sacrificing his own children in that valley. And it, become, it became a place that was effectively a city dump. They would throw their trash out there and they would burn it. And so out in the valley of Hinnom, you would constantly see this just burning trash heap out there in the valley. And so because of all the atrocities there, they just used it as a place of, of refuse. It just, it just, you know, stuff was, was burnt there. That's the only place the land was good for. And so even before the time of Jesus, this became known as an association with eternal judgment and eternal punishment. And so we, we certainly would refer to certain places that we may visit as like hell on earth. That's essentially the same kind of image that's being communicated in the valley of Hinnom, or with the word Gehenna, that Jesus means for hell. Essentially the image, it's not pleasant, but hell never is. The image that he's communicating is, this is essentially where God burns his trash. Now, think about how powerful that image is, how, how awful that image is. That's the kind of image that's coming across with hell. And so the subtle point that's being made here is that uh, a, a bodily resurrection of the dead is a reality. That, th that though you die and you go into the ground, your body will be resurrected. So, in other words, the dead body goes into the grave and then it later will be restored to life. Now think about how big of a reversal this is for the persecutor. The persecutor has power over the sword has power over life and death. And they put the Christian to death. Think about the reversal that happens when that Christian then raises from the dead. Think about the feeling of the persecutor when they see the Christian that they put to death raised from the dead. The persecutor, in other words, attempts to snuff out the dandelion of the Christian. You know, like my kids grab the dandelion out of the yard and they're like, Daddy, look, watch this. And you go, no, and you know what's going to happen. As soon as they blow the dandelion seeds, what, is it, what happens? More dandelions sprout up. They, more, it comes back stronger, in other words. So consider for a second the persecutor as he puts the Christian to death, only to see him come back stronger than he was before. This time, when the Christian is resurrected from the dead, she's not only vindicated by God, but now God is avenging her death. So the thing that resurrected her, the one that resurrected her, 
is coming back deciding for her and against the persecutor. There's never more of an oh-no moment than at the resurrection of the dead. So what Jesus is saying is that the supposed victory by the persecutor is only very temporary. And they will eventually see that though the power of the first death was given to them, and they used it to kill the Christian, the power of the second death is available to God alone. The second death, though, is eternal and is filled with pain and anguish for all of eternity. How painful and how anguishing is the second death, is hell. So painful that Jesus warns us it would be better to cut off your arm or to gouge out your eye if that's what was causing you to sin than to go into hell. See, Christians believe in the resurrection of the dead. We believe that we will die, whether by persecution or by cancer, by heart attacks, by strokes, by whatever other causes there may be. We will all die. We'll all go into the grave. And when you die, your soul goes to be immediately with the Lord while your body rots in the ground. This is why Jesus can tell the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Or Paul can say, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. How can you be absent from the body and present with the Lord at the same time? Well, it's because your body goes into the ground to rot and your soul goes to be with the Lord immediately. Then, then, in God's time, Jesus comes back again. Now, similar to how he spoke into nothingness in the beginning and created everything. Jesus will come back and will speak into creation and recreate the world. And that includes the dead rising out of their graves. That means all disintegrated bodies. That means the, the sea will give up its dead. The book of Revelation tells us and many other places tell us every uh, person that has ever died will be resurrected, will be raised and fitted for eternity. And our souls will be reunited with our bodies. We do not believe in other words, that the soul is the real you that's waiting to escape this sinful flesh. That when you die, finally you can be who God made you to be. No, we believe that part of what it means to be human is a psychosomatic union. A union of soul and body. That's what it means to be human. And so we're created body and soul by God. And body and soul is who God intends us to be for all eternity. And if that's how God created you to be, body and soul, and if the persecutor can come in and take away the body, then God is no kind of redeemer. Then God is an insufficient redeemer. If that's how God created you to be, and He cannot redeem your body, then He is insufficient as a redeemer. He's lost. He lost to the persecutor. But that's not what's going to happen. Remember, Paul reminds us in Thessalonians, I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, 
that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this I declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from the heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So though the persecutor has power over this body, his power is only temporary and its effect is only temporary. So it's foolish to fear him. A third reason that it's uh, foolish to fear him is that your life is valuable to God. That your life is valuable to God. Look at verses 29 to 31. Are, you not, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. There's a, a very simple mantra that you can repeat to yourself anytime life seems chaotic or maybe you're overwhelmed. The simple mantra that I remind myself of all the time is there are no rogue particles in God's universe. There are no rogue particles in God's universe. Whatever comes to me, there is no rogue particles in God's universe. So what Jesus is saying in regards to persecution, notice that his comfort here in these verses comes after he tells you that death is an option, that it's possible that you would be put to death. He uses two illustrations here to get to his point. The first is that God knows every single sparrow that hits the ground. He knows every single sparrow that hits the ground. Now, sparrows are cheap, he says. Their contribution to society is insignificant. Yet not one of the sparrows gets snatched by the house cat without his notice. Even, he says, the hairs on your head are numbered. So in other words, God knows where all my hairs are. But apparently he's keeping it a secret. He's choosing not to tell me. That's for sure. <laughs> so, but if you didn't get the first image, you get the second of how insignificant the individual hairs on your head are. It's growing less impressive by the day for me, but that's okay. God has them numbered. But then Jesus gets to the point of these illustrations in verse 31. You are of more value than many sparrows. I think we're supposed to connect this point to the two previous points where we saw that God has the power to destroy body and soul in hell and, and where all the deeds done in darkness will be revealed. We're to see those two in connection to this one, that he sees everything, even the little sparrows that fall to the ground. And you are more valuable to him than any of them. 
So if you do the math, then what you get is that God not only sees the suffering of His children, of Christians around the world, not only does He care about the suffering of His children, but at the right time, He's going to do something about it. That God will avenge the blood of His martyrs. The Apostle John gives us a glimpse of this in Revelation yet again, in Revelation chapter 6, where he says this, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then just a few verses later, we see the answer in verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? So considering your value before the Father, considering the seriousness with which He takes the treatment of His children, I pity the persecutor on the day of judgment. We'll see more of this later on in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus warns those who attempt his little ones to sin. Where he says it would be better for, uh, for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Those people that think it's a fun sport persecuting or even lampooning Christians may find that that peace-loving, hippie God that they think they serve is actually a God of great wrath and judgment in the end and the one that has final say over the body. A final reason to forego fearing persecution is comforting, uh, conforming to the forces of this present world will have eternal consequences. Conforming to the forces of this present world will have eternal consequences. Look at verse 32 to 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But everyone who denies me before men, I, will also, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. A necessary criteria to being a disciple of Jesus is to acknowledge Him publicly. The gospel should remind us that we're rebels against God. We're not just victims of the fall we are the cause of it. We are ones that have caused 
the fall. And because of our rebellion against God, we're worthy of punishment in the same hell that Jesus spoke of back in verse 28. But God sent Jesus to live a perfect life, a life we couldn't, and die on our behalf, and to take the wrath stored up for us because of our rebellion. And so Jesus' message here to us reaffirms this. That we need an advocate before the Father. That's his point. That we need an advocate before the Father. And it's only in Christ that we have that advocate. Perhaps you're here and you don't believe what I'm saying is true. It's possible. I want to first urge you to reconsider. First, I want you to think about the finely tuned world around you. And that the most logical explanation is that it was created by a divine mind. Just think about that for a moment. About the finely tuned world around you and that the most logical explanation is that it was created by a divine mind. And then after you consider that, I would urge you to consider the historical claims of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And so once you consider all of those things, and once you find that not only do they have merit, but they are true, then I want you to consider what Jesus' own words about the Scriptures say. What does He testify about the Scriptures that are in front of us? If He really did rise from the dead, then He should be an authority on these kinds of issues. And just consider for a moment what He says about the Scriptures. I think Vodi Bauckham puts it, succinctly, and why he believes the Bible is true. He says the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. I think that's a pretty succinct answer as to why we believe the Bible is true, and I would urge you to consider that. But the reason that I would encourage you to seriously consider this is because regardless of what you think of me, regardless of what you think of every person in this room, regardless of what you think of every Christian that you have ever met in history, the fact remains that one day you will stand before a holy God and the only way to avoid an eternity in hell is by faith in Christ Jesus, the righteous, who stands in your place as an advocate. So when Christ says here in the text, if you don't proclaim me before men, if you deny me before men, then you'll have no advocate. That should come as a serious warning for us. Because it's an advocate that we all desperately need. However, he says he's not an advocate of those that deny him. Sam Storms puts it like this, make no mistake about it, to deny Jesus to repudiate him, to declare that he is not the Son of God incarnate, and that he did not die for sinners, and that he did not rise from the dead, and that he's not the only way to the Father, results in eternal death. Anyone and everyone who denies the Son shall himself or herself be denied. Ultimately, The Christian life is a value assessment. 
some in this world will remain blind to Christ's kingdom forever. They, in other words, they will not see its true value. They will wonder at what you're going on about. Why do you keep living that way? Why do you keep doing those kinds of things? They won't be able to see the value in putting all your chips in on the table on Christ's kingdom. In fact, this will be the best life that they know. This will be it. They won't believe that there is a better life to come. They won't understand what you're talking about. And so when it comes to a decision where they're required to either acknowledge Jesus and die or deny Him and live, they will choose the best life that they know. In fact, that's true of all of us. When faced with the sword, when faced with ultimate persecution, acknowledge Jesus and die or deny Him and live, we are all of us going to choose the best life we know. And if we are living our best life now, we're going to seek to preserve it at all costs. Under no circumstances would we give it up. Why do you think it's more difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? Because wealth affords you a lot of luxuries in this life. And it makes this life pretty sweet. And so the question becomes, why would I want to give that up? Why would I want to do something that would forsake that? But what you're not considering is that if it's not, if it's not a bullet now, then it's going to be cancer later. Or it'll be a stroke later. Or it'll be a heart attack later. Or to be simply old age later. Christ is telling his followers that when you put on the glasses of the kingdom, when you put on the goggles of the kingdom, what you're doing may look foolish to the outside world, but it's ultimate reality. That it causes you to react to things differently. It causes you to respond to things differently. See, the key to fearlessness in the face of persecution, it's seeing that the life to come is of infinitely more value than anything that you could gain here. The question is, do you see the value of the kingdom or not? We all want to ask that question of ourselves. What would I do if a gun was to my head? And I had the choice to say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus and be killed. Or say no and live. What would I do? Haven't we all wondered that from time to time? Haven't we all thought about that from time to time? Well, it seems as though our life gives us the arrows that point the direction that we would choose. If you find true fulfillment in this life. The arrows are, are pointing in the direction that you will seek to preserve your life under all costs. But if you're regularly giving of yourself 
then probably you will continue to acknowledge Jesus and die. Because it's a testimony to where you're betting, what value you really see in this life, where you are, are placing all your chips. Are you continually jumping from one thing to another, never satisfied? I'm not satisfied with this house, I've got to have the next house. This house will really fulfill me. And then you get to that house and it just doesn't match up to what you thought. And so you move again and you get a better and bigger house. And you never seem to be quite satisfied. Or your job just continues to change. Or your car just continues to change. The next thing that you buy will continue, will satisfy you even more until you get that thing and you realize that it doesn't satisfy nearly as much as you thought it would. Are you developing an insatiable appetite for the things of this world and are you never denying yourselves of its luxuries? This is particularly important in America where we can afford so many things. We're almost never wanting for anything. Are we ever denying ourselves of the luxuries? You know what? I continue to want and that appetite in me to want the next thing just continues to grow. So I'm just going to not have I'm just going to intentionally deny myself those luxuries until I stop wanting them so bad. But if that's you, if you find that insatiable appetite to want and gun to your head, there's a high likelihood that you'll opt for the best life that you know, which is this one. See, our fears of others are tied directly to our desire to preserve our own life. And that's why Jesus addresses it. That's why he reorients our fears. The question is, which direction is your fear facing? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we continue to wrestle with fear and doubt, we pray for courage. We pray for eyes to be able to see your kingdom in all of its glory. We pray that our eyes be only satisfied by the things of the world to come. Pray that our stomachs only be satisfied by the things of the world to come. Pray that our bodies only be satisfied by the things of the world to come. And that we know that here, pleasure is only temporary. That while it is a good gift that you have given to us, that we can enjoy, we enjoy it in your name alone. That we enjoy it because it is a gift from you, and for no other reason. Father, we pray in the midst of persecution, in the midst of trial, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of anything, our decisions will reflect the fact that we believe that the kingdom to come is far greater than the kingdom of this world. In Jesus' name, amen.